and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Writing Magazine. If you've always wanted to write, but never known how to start, or if you've already got a book under your belt, Writing Magazine is just what you need to practice, develop and publish your written work. Filled with author profiles, tips from agents and advice from publishers, Writing Magazine is a great way to get you started, or back in the saddle, with writing of any genre. Discover how to beat writer's block, develop a character, write for children or choose a genre, it's all there in every issue. Writing Magazine have provided an exclusive discount for listeners of Always Take Notes. Download their digital magazine and try their introductory subscription offer at three issues for just £4.99, worth £18. You can claim this offer online and the link is in the show notes. As a subscriber, you also benefit from discounted entry into their monthly writing competitions, which is a great way to practice your skills and potentially win cash prizes and publication in their magazine. Offer ends 31st of January 2022. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist David Baldacci. We spoke to David about the publication of Absolute Power, his hit debut novel in 1996 about balancing series and standalone novels, and about negotiating a better deal with publishers. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. David, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's excellent to have you on the show. I wanted to start with a quote that I found from you in another interview you did, which is about why people are drawn to crime novels or thrillers. And the quote was that when times are stressful and it looks like the bad is winning out over the good, Along comes the genre of crime novel to put the balance back into life. People inherently don't like folks who do bad to get away with it. In real life, they do all the time because of a variety of factors. But in novels, evil is punished and the good guys mostly win after solving the puzzle. And all is right with the world, at least fictionally. Could you expand on that idea a little bit for us? Yeah, I think I, I think the last five years, at least in the United States, has driven me to think about these things a little more closely than I might have otherwise. Um, the world really right now is upside down, and there's really little to be made sense of. Um, you know, I I follow the news, I follow all the politics. I'm I'm heavily invested and interested in politics in this country. Uh, it's quite depressing at times, and for me to to be able to write a book or read a book where things seem to follow some logical course, um, and when bad deeds are punished. Um, and justice prevails, and the world is set right again. There's some comfort in that, even though it's not real. At least it's a, it's a theme that people can look at and maybe aspire to in real life. So I think that fiction oftentimes has driven broad change in the world. Um, and I think today, more than ever, people should look towards fiction because people who are writing it are trying to assemble it in a way that it actually makes sense um, and that the way things turn out are the way they should turn out. There are very stark choices in life today. Um, and unfortunately, I, I look at the world and I see wrong decisions being made in a lot of things. I'm not saying that my opinion is always right, but it's pretty easy to see, you know, what is right and what is wrong in various parts of at least my country, um, where we should encourage lots of people to vote, not discourage them or make it harder for them to vote. And so fiction is a way to sort of maybe, you know, bring a little more semblance of logic and justice to the world that people can aspire to. And you said in 2014 that you wished someone would write a sequel to 1984. Could you tell us a little bit why, why you think that would be a good idea? Yeah, it, um, it wouldn't be hard <laughs> at this point. Um, I think a lot of the things that, we, um, that were discussed in that novel um, have come to life. And the weird thing is, you know, when people say, you know, you should read history so you don't, you're not doomed to repeat it. And one, one broad theme in all of my novels, and I like to talk about, is that there is one static factor in all of humanity, um, and that's human beings. So uh, a thousand years ago, human beings were jealous and greedy and lustful and wanted power and wanted to have control over other people and wanted to acquire great wealth. Those exact same conditions exist today because human beings, we have evolved in certain ways. We have remained static in certain other ways. Um, so 1984 is a novel that could be written, could have been written a thousand years ago, could be written a thousand years hence in the future. 
um, because human beings remain the same in those regards. We had, we had the first Gilded Age at the beginning of the 20th century in this country where five men, well, five white guys, owned about 75% of the wealth in the United States. Their name were Carnegie and Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan. So fast forward 115 years to 2021, and we have about eight white guys who own 90% of the wealth in the United States. Their names are Bezos and Musk and Gates and Buffett. So the names have changed, but the principles remain the same. Um, so 1984 you know, was a cautionary tale, um, but apparently we didn't really um, take it as a cautionary tale because things are exactly you know, where they need to be to be set up for us to fall off the precipice and to go into really what 1984 talked about, which was total mind control over everyone and everything. Um, and people go, oh my God, you know, we're not even near that. And I said, just, look, just read the newspaper. Well, you can't read the newspaper because it's all fake news. Fake news, was that a theme in 1984? I think it was. Could we roll back now to the start of your career or really the start of your life? And is it right that when you were a child, your mother gave you this notebook and only years later you found out this was actually a tactic to keep you quiet? Yeah, she didn't say that politely. She just basically said, I just wanted to shut you the hell up, son, because, you know, I'm your mom. I will love you to death, but um, you had gotten my last nerve and even mom's in a little peace and quiet. I was the kid in our, in our neighborhood. I grew up in a very working class neighborhood. You know, where all the houses look the same, they're all like 900 square feet. Everybody was either a plumber, electrician, or drove a truck or whatever. Moms typically stayed at home. And the kids, are, we created our own amusement. You know, there was nothing we would go to the store and buy. This wasn't available. Um, so I was designated as the, the storyteller of our neighborhood. I was the guy who came up with all the adventures. We would go into, into the woods during the summer and after school, the fights we would have, the battles, the adventures, the journeys, the travels, and all that. And I just talked nonstop about this stuff. And I also would argue with everybody, particularly people in positions of power, just constantly. And people started calling me at age six years old. The, I grew up on Austin Avenue, the Austin Avenue lawyer. I grew up to become a trial lawyer where I would constantly argue with people in positions of power. Um, so my mom one day came to me. She, bought, she went to the store and bought a journal and said, son, you know, I know you like to read. I know you like to talk about all this, these yarns and tales and stories. And why don't you try writing some of them down? Maybe you could create your own little book. Uh, that other people could read. And really it was an epiphany because I had never really thought about that possibility. And I remember putting pen to paper, just a little short story. I have no idea what I wrote about, but it was just something coming out of my head. And years later, I did go back to my mom. It's not apocryphal, it's true. And I said, my God, mom, what a, that day changed my life. Thank you so much. And that's when she said, well, I just wanted to shut you up. Um, so, you know, sometimes positive things can come out of something kind of not as positive. And I read that you uh, consumed a lot of Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, detective stories. Were those the kind of tales that you were telling in your in your own time, or was it more adventure, fantasy, or something else? It was it was half and half because I love puzzles too, you know. So and those books for me were just puzzle pieces. Um, yeah, they had great characters, and Holmes and Watson were great characters, and Poirot and Jane Marple were great characters, um, but they were puzzle components. I remember the. Um, you know, the author, uh, John Updike, Pulitzer Prize winner, terrific novelist. Someone asked him one time, why haven't you ever tried a mystery? And Updike, I don't know if this is true or not, but Updike allegedly said, because I'm not smart enough. Um, because a mystery has to have every element that other novels have. Call it commercial fiction, call it literary fiction, I don't care. But on, overlaid on top of that is a puzzle. You know, would you have clues and red herrings and you have to have investigations and people have to have, you know, your suspects and you have to be people trying to find out things, investigators, which are not in other types of novels. So you have to, it's really two novels in one. So that really appealed to me, both the adventure, which my books are filled with kind of action and adventure, but also that mystery piece that I have to sit down and figure out precisely what's going to happen and what clues need to be there and always have red herrings. And you always have to have other options for people to go down the wrong path. You know, and, and Holmes and Agatha Christie were replete with those types of things. And I sort of cut my teeth on that. I remember the first Sherlock Holmes story I ever read was The Blue Carbuncle, you know, about the, 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 the diamond being stolen uh, during Christmas. And I had never heard of this Arthur Conan Doyle. I read it in like, you know, a Reader's Digest little book thing that had other stories. And I remember finishing that book and going, God, I hope he's written other stuff <laughs> at age 12. And uh, luckily I found out he'd written lots of other stuff. And what was your route then from this, this childhood to going and becoming a, a trial lawyer and a litigator? And, and I also saw that you said that the experience of writing legal briefs had helped you as a writer because you were 
paid to take the same set of facts the other side had and, and make you believe that my version of it was true. It was great training, I think. I, you know, so in that little journal, I started writing short stories because uh, I love short story writers. I was the biggest Alan Monroe, Alice Monroe fan. I love Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Truman Capote, Raymond Carver. Um, and so throughout high school and into college, I wrote short stories and tried to sell them to various places. I had utterly almost no success at all. Even when I occasionally would sell a short story to a publication no one's ever heard of and is no longer in business, they wouldn't even give me a check. They would send me like, hey, here's five free copies of the magazine. Enjoy, you know, so I could see my byline five times but no money came with it. And I decided that when I was in college, I was a political science major. So all, all I did in college was read a lot of books and wrote a lot of papers and stood up and defended them. So I thought, what am I going to do with my life? A poli-sci major, what, you know, what is that? Um, so I decided, let me give law school a shot. So I took the tests and did, did well. And I actually took a year off between college and law school to go work at a law firm because I wanted to figure out what the hell they did. It was something I might enjoy doing for the rest of my life. Um, and I, I liked it. I went to law school. And there are a number of lawyers who write fiction, John Grisham, Scott Trow, both friends of mine I've known for a long, long time. And so as a lawyer, I, the only arrows I had in my quiver were words. That was it. You know? So I had to create stories based on the same set of facts the other side had, but I had to argue diametrically opposed positions on that. And the way I did it is I would embellish facts that helped my side, and I would sort of discount or belittle facts that helped the other side. But I stood up in front of a judge or a jury, and I would say, Here's the version of reality that you should listen to because it's the correct one. And words are so critically important. And I found that out in law and certainly it is in, in, in writing fiction. I remember I wrote when I was still in a, a, not even out of law school. I was working at a law firm in D.C. And I picked that law firm for only one reason because they were in the Watergate office building. And I still have my business card from there, the Watergate office building. Oh, my God. You know, it was like that's the only reason. It was they were a good firm, too. But that building was so cool. And we were um, representing a client who was trying to get jurisdiction over this company in Texas, you know, and it's called long arm jurisdiction. So let's say the company's headquartered in Alaska, but they do a little bit of business in Texas. Some companies would say, well, you can't sue me in Texas because we're really in Alaska. So if you want to sue me, come to Alaska. So our point was under long arm jurisdiction, if they have enough connections to Texas, they should be able to be sued in Texas. And I remember writing the brief and I remember agonizing over what verb to use in one sentence. And finally, I settled on the word flit. I said a company should not be allowed to flit in and out of the great state of Texas and have all the benefits of that and have none of the consequences when they do something wrong. So I think that a court should be able to have jurisdiction over them so the justice could be done. So in the order of the judge, we won that motion and, and, the order, and the judge came out and used the word flit in his opinion. So that shows you how little things can have great consequences and thinking of, like Mark Twain said, almost the right, right word and the right word is a great matter indeed. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. And it absolutely is. You know, word choices can move mountains. Presumably as well, the storytelling element of working in the law, you also had to become quite good at attention to detail, character depictions. Presumably it was a sort of training in a different medium that you then could apply pretty easily to, to writing novels. Yeah, when people ask me, how, was it a tough transition? I said, not really at all. I said, some of the best fiction I ever wrote was when I was a lawyer. <laughs> you know, tongue in cheek, he said. But, um, you know, there are varying degrees of truth and fact, and there's a spectrum you can work along. And I always worked within the canonical constraints that I had. You know, I was bound by canon of ethics, and I never stayed, stayed beyond that. But within that spectrum, there's a lot of wiggle room that you can use to be creative. Um, so when I sit down to write my novels, I understand that I'm going to write about a certain subject matter. So I need to research that subject matter. I need to understand it as intimately as I possibly can so that I can write it in such a way that I can leave most of the research out. You know, I'm not writing a, I'm not writing a, a technical textbook. If I need to write something about nuclear weapons, I am not going to write 50 pages and stick it into a novel because the reader is just going to flip through all that crap and get to the other end, right? So a sentence here, a paragraph there, a line of dialogue, but you need to understand the subject matter really intimately in order to be able to, to dissect it down to that, little, to that nth degree so you don't blow the novel up by you know, writing a textbook in disguise. So I would do the research, and then I would have to come up with characters to populate that. Now, as a lawyer, I met all sorts of people across all walks of life. You know, and one thing that I realized early on was I just had to assume that everybody, including my own clients, were lying to me. 
you know? It's just the way that it was. So as investigators in my novels, that's sort of their take on life too. You can call it cynical or you can call it just pragmatic because unless you can corroborate somebody's statement, just assume they're lying to you because people lie all the time for all sorts of reasons, even for good reasons, good people lie. Um, so that also benefited me. And I had great interest. I had a lot of great contacts that I built over, over the years too when I was a lawyer. I worked with a lot of federal agencies and law enforcement and stuff like that. And then I would, for my novels, I would go and talk to them, interview them. Um, just as I did when I was a lawyer, I had to go and interview people. I would sit down with witnesses and I would have to interview them and get their statements. And um, I really became quite good at reading body language and determining whether somebody was lying to me or not. I just listened to a podcast recently that said the best way to determine whether someone's lying to you is their, the number of words they use and their word choices. So people who are lying to you tend to use far fewer words. Um, because they're afraid of getting tripped up and they don't want to say stuff that they know they can't corroborate because they're building a lie. Whereas truthful people just blah, 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 because they know they're telling the truth and they can back up everything because they're not lying. And that's just phenomenal. They've done the computer analysis of this stuff where if somebody uses 76 words and another person in the same sort of context uses 347 words, 98% of the time, the guy with the 76 words is the liar. And it turns out they proved to be lying. So I love that stuff. And the other thing about being a lawyer and a writer is every day you should learn something you didn't know the day before. And I certainly did that as a lawyer and I do that as a fiction writer. Could you tell us about the gestation of your first novel of Absolute Power from 1996? So we're really interested in the show and on the show in the kind of mechanics of these things, you know, how you found the time to write when you were doing a full-time job. I understand it was mornings, weekends, things like that. And then also how you went about finding an agent, finding your way to, to publishers. Is it right that you had some forays into screenwriting before the novel? Yeah, in fact, uh, the one, one screenplay that I had written that ties right into my work on Absolute Power, um, I had written a, sp a screenplay in 1991 called Reverse Order. And it was sort of like Die Hard in the White House, 20 years before you had Olympus has fallen and all that. Literally, 1991, it was Die Hard in the White House. And it was clever how they got in and what they did while they were there and how they were finally defeated. And I wrote it. I had an agent that I'd gotten in Hollywood based on some of my other screenplays. And um, it was right, right then. It was out in Hollywood. Warners was looking at it, Paramount, Universal, all the big guys were looking at it. And I had just joined a new law firm. And so I had to fly up to Islip, New York and Long Island. And I was, went up there with a bunch of lawyers and we were a couple, our client was buying a bunch of banks. So we were sent up there to review ground bank bank ground leases. Um, if you ever have trouble sleeping, I would recommend the reading of bank ground leases. It will put you to sleep in about 12 <laughs> seconds. Uh, so it was disgustingly boring. And at the same time, while I'm doing this, I'm waiting to hear if my screenplay has sold. My agent is like calling. There's no texting back then. Calling and saying, oh, wow, you know, Warner's is like all over this. The coverage is great. I think this is going to be a big break. So at midnight that night, after I'd gotten back from all this drudgery, I, I got a call because of the time difference. And my agent said, you know, Warner's pulled out for some reason. Then everybody assumed that Warner's had a problem with it. There's a problem with the script. So the herb mentality out there was like, ah, everybody passed. And she said, I'm really sorry. And I remember looking out my window of my motel in Long Island at midnight thinking, you know, maybe I'm just not going to get the break I need. Maybe this is not going to happen for me. I'm just going to be one of those millions of unpublished writers. So I went back to D.C. And I remember taking a bike ride with my wife. This is before we had kids. Um, and we would do the George Washington Parkway, which you could take from Virginia into D.C. And we would, drive, we would ride by the White House when it was, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue back then was still open to vehicular traffic. And I remember, um, and my, my law office was close by too. And um, I was a student of history. I was really interested in John F. Kennedy, you know, Camelot and all that, which was sort of a myth. And he had lots of affairs and trysts. And there was one rumor that there's a White House is here, Treasury Department is here, and there was a connecting tunnel between the two. And there was rooms down there where sometimes he would have trysts with women. So then I started thinking about what if, you know, he had a tryst one time and something really went horribly wrong. And the woman was killed because she, something went bad and the president did something and she tried to defend herself and the Secret Service had to step in and kill her. You know, I thought now that's plausible because, you know, Presidents have done this stuff before, and the Secret Service's job is that this life cannot be lost no matter what. They don't care if the woman is defending herself. If she's attacking the president, they're going to take her out, and that's what happened in absolute power. So I thought, this is an interesting premise. I think I could really get my teeth into this. I, have a, I can have a lot of fun with it, particularly after I came up with this burglar idea. This, he was in the house seeing it all, because I needed a protagonist who would sort of carry this forward and, and later be a vehicle for the truth coming up. So I spent three years writing it. And I, like every other writer out there who's trying to get published, I just found time to write it. I would write early in the morning. I would write late at night. 
Uh, I would think about it during the day while I was working because it was just, if you want to write a novel and actually finish it, you have to be obsessed with it. You know, you have to be immersed in it. You can't just be uh, mildly interested or fascinated by the subject matter. I'll give you a case in point. You know, after Jurassic Park came out, Michael Crichton with the dinosaurs, every script and every book pitch had dinosaurs in it. I don't care if it was a romantic comedy. You had a T-Rex running down the hallway. You know, it just, that's the way it was. Why? Because everybody was chasing a trend. Oh, dinosaurs are hot. That's what I'm going to write about. I could give a shit about dinosaurs, but I'm going to write about it because Michael Crichton made a ton of money off of it. And Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Everybody's writing code books. They didn't care about codes, but they wrote it anyway. What happened? Their, their books and their scripts were crap. So they just stayed in the sludge pile because these people were interested in the subject matter. You need to be really... You have to have a full creative tank um, if you want your prose, characters, and plot to rise above the sludge piles that everybody else is stuck in because they just wrote about crap they didn't care about. So I really cared about this idea of a president, you know, because what was fascinating to me was I had great respect for Secret Service agents. So they did their job and they destroyed their careers and their lives. You know, they felt morally contemptible because of what they did. This woman actually was doing the right thing and they still had to kill her to protect this scumbag. And I thought the, mor the moral spectrum across that was fascinating to me. And I had a burglar who steals for a living, and he was like the person with the highest morals in the whole novel. So I had a great deal of fun with it, and I got to tell you, I was obsessed with it. I thought about it pretty much every minute of my life. And I think because of that, um, you know, it was, the end result was a really compelling book. And the way I, I got an agent... Um, I knew I needed an agent back then. You know, nobody self-published back then. Back then, it wasn't using Amazon. You just sold it out of the trunk of your car, right? I didn't want to go that route. So I would, every time I hear about a first-time novelist hitting it big, I'd go down to the bookstore. I'd open the book. I'd look in the acknowledgments where they thank people. They always thank their agent, always. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for, you know, bringing me out of this terrible life and making me a writer. So I would put those names down, and I had like seven names. By the time Absolute Power was done, I did a short query letter. And I was very, again, it was like flitting. It was very carefully worded. I said, I'm David Baldacci. I'm a lawyer in, in Washington, D.C. This book is about the president, a burglar, a, a murder, and a cover-up. And I guarantee if you read the first page, you won't stop until you read the last page. Sincerely, me. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One, because I thought I need to have confidence in my material. If I didn't have a confidence, how could they? And secondly, and a lot more importantly, half of them I knew would read it just to try to prove me wrong. So they could write me back and say, you know what, this is shit, and you're not any good at all. But they would read it. So the six of the seven contacted me back like in two weeks and said, we want to be your agent. Uh, so I went up to New York. I, I lied to my firm. I said I was sick. I went to New York. I interviewed them. And the agent I picked, and my agent still today, Aaron Priest, he asked me a question nobody else asked. He said, look, I know you're talking to other agents. Every agent, you know, a monkey could sell this book. It's a really good book. Anybody can sell this book. But here's my question to you. Is this the only book you're going to write? Because if it is, I have no interest in representing you because I don't represent books. I represent careers. And I was like, you're the only one to ask me that. Everybody else was like, oh, we're going to make a lot of money off this book. But I had a lot of books I wanted to write. And that was a difference for me. So that's how I got an agent. Um, and then the, the publishing was, you know, butterflies out of the yin-yang because I, this was my big shot. If this didn't go, you know, I was probably never going to have another shot. So when the book came out, I went everywhere. You know, anybody who wanted me to come to, you know, try to sell this book and market this book, you know, a four-person ladies' book group in Nebraska that could, could all call me up and say, hey, can you come over for dinner tonight? We're reading your book. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> you know, so there I was in Nebraska. But I really took it upon myself. And I traveled the world, you know, because I had a lot of international publishers that were, I traveled the world. I was gone for like a month, you know, just traveling around the world for this book, aside from the United States. And it was funny because when I, I got back from this world tour, before I left, we had just had a baby, you know? So my son was four weeks old when I left, and he was two months old when I got back. So when I got back to the airport, my, my wife was there with the kids, you know? And my, my daughter's T-shirt my wife had made, it said, do you remember me, Daddy? You know, and then my, my wife's T-shirt was, that said, you know, I survived the 1996 book tour. And then you turned around, and on the back it said, you owe me big, you know? So, um, but that's what you needed to do. Because I, the bottom line was I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a published writer and make my living this way. And if you want something badly enough, you know, you work your tail off for it. Sounds like there's maybe, yeah, it's a two-person <laughs> two achievement to an extent. Um, what was the process of um, turning it into a film like? And when did you know that it was going to really take off in, in that format as well? I was, um, I was in, 
at Penn Station in New York, train station. I was getting ready to go back to Virginia. And I got a call from my agent while well, I was still at, my, at the publisher's office and said, um, there's a bidding war on the film rights for Absolute Power. And, you know, so call me in 30 minutes. Again, no cell phones or anything back then. So I remember going to Penn Station. My train was going to leave in a few minutes. I'm at a payphone. And I'm on a payphone on a conference call with seven other studios and my agent. And they're all bidding while they're on the phone. You know, and the price of the thing is going up and up and up. Paramount, Universal, and Warner Brothers, and 20th Century Fox. And I was like, oh, my God, is this really how this works? And so I'm, like, yelling into the phone because I'm so excited. And there's a lot of people behind me on the payphone, you know, just pissed off at me because, you know, get off the damn phone. You know, <laughs> I have a call to make, too. Um, so then I found out that, um, you know, Warner Brothers um, had bought the rights to it. Um, and then I found out right after that, that uh, Bill Goldman, legendary screenwriter Bill Goldman, had been hired to write the screenplay. Um, and I was like, this is surreal. I can't even believe this. I mean, people I didn't even know were like throwing checks at me from all over the world, you know, and something I had no experience at at all. I just, I just wanted to have a book published. Um, so that's how I found out about the film rights in, the, in Penn Station on a payphone. And then when I was, I was actually on another train, like a month later, um, when I got a call uh, from... Uh, my, I, I got a, a relay from a, a phone call, and, and I got on the train, because, and, the, and the phone call had been from Bill Goldman. And he said, I have some really great news, and I have some really bad news for you. And I was like, okay, what's the great news? He said, the great news is that iconic filmmaker Clint Eastwood has just signed to star, direct, and produce Absolute Power. The film has now been green-lighted by the studio. Congratulations. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, are you kidding me? And then, then I said, well, what's the bad news? He goes, the bad news is that iconic filmmaker, Clint Eastwood, has just signed to star, direct, and produce your film. So your book is pretty much gone <laughs> from the plot. Because um, Eastwood is signed to be the burglar. And in the book, the burglar dies about halfway through, and this young lawyer sort of takes up the case and actually solves it. Um, and Eastwood was like... I. I'm the hero in every movie that I make. I do not die in my movies. Back then, he didn't die in any of his movies. Even in, like, High Plains Drifter, he got killed, but he came back as a ghost and kicked everybody's ass, you know? It was like, that was Clint back then. It wasn't until Gran Torino, like, four years ago, when he got machine gunned to death, but he was, like, you know, 85 years old. I guess it was okay at that point. Um, so Bill Goldman's dilemma was, he had already written various drafts of the, of the script where there was, the burglar died. Eastwood died, you know? And I remember he called me up one night I think he'd been drinking. He's a really cool guy, by the way. He's, he's passed away now, but I loved his work and just phenomenal. I've got a bunch of his original scripts on the shelf up there. And he said, I can't figure out how to keep the son of a bitch alive <laughs> in the script. And he goes, you want to have a shot at it? And I was like, Bill, I spent three years of my life figuring out how to kill the guy. No, I do not want to revisit this. I'm sorry. So they had to bring in another screenwriter to do a, 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 another draft. I think it was Terry Gilroy. Um, and Terry figured out how to keep Eastwood alive. And then the, the script was done. And I got to tell you, it was, a, it was a surreal experience for me because I remember I went to all the premieres. I went to the premiere in London. I went to the premiere in Hollywood. I went to the premiere in D.C. And the one in D.C. was really weird because the film, we saw the film and I'm walking out. And I'm talking to a reporter from a local station. And this guy comes over. He's in a suit. He's got a little, you can always tell, he had a little white mark. It's a tan line from where the curly cue goes into the ear. So I, I looked at the guy coming over and I, okay, he's a federal agent of some sort. He's got a little bump here, you know, where you got the shoulder holster. And he comes over and um, I finished with the reporter. And uh, he said, I, I got a question for you. I was like, okay. And he said, where do you get off having Clint Eastwood kill a Secret Service agent by stabbing him in the neck with a hypodermic needle. And I could see he was a Secret Service agent, obviously. I was like, I was like um, that's, not, that's not in the book. <laughs> and then he leaned over, and he was a big guy. He leaned forward, and he goes, your book, your movie. And I was like, holy shit, they didn't teach this in novel writing school. What do I do now? So luckily, this woman comes over. She was apparently with the guy, and she's like, John, 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 he's telling you the truth. I read the book. That's not in the book. Clint Eastwood doesn't, doesn't kill a Secret Service agent. And by that point, I was kind of pissed. So I looked at this big guy, and I was kind of, I slowly, I remember slowly reaching into my pocket, slowly reaching into my pocket. He pulled out a piece of paper. It was just a blank piece. But I said, hey, if you have a problem with the movie, here is Clint Eastwood's personal phone number. Why don't you give him a call, and you can have it out with Clint. So here's this big dude. He looks at me. He looks at the piece of paper. 
And he, then he's kind of like, no, that's okay, man. I'm cool. <laughs> he just leaves. I didn't scare him one bit, but apparently Clint scared the hell out of the guy. So that was, it was kind of weird all the way through. I mean, it was, it was great to see it. I wanted to see some of the filming and I have to ha hand it to Clint Eastwood. It, I've been on lots of film sets. I've had all my stuff done for film and television. He was the director and, and, and an actor in the film. So the director, he would go in with this whole crew that he'd been using for 50 years, and he, you would have to set up the entire shot, and he would have to check all of that stuff, you know, the, the cues, the marks, the dialogue, the lighting, everything, set design, and get all that straight. And then when the camera's waiting, he goes, he puts on his wardrobe, he goes in front of the camera, he does his bit, he comes back behind the camera, checks it, as the director pulled off his actor hat, now he's a director again, decides whether we need another take or we can move on. And that is damn hard. I mean, that is not an easy thing to do. And then what was it like following that up? I mean, going, you know, had this huge smash with your debut novel. Did you feel in any way kind of difficult second album syndrome in terms of what, what you were going to do next? And where did the decision to, to move to writing series as, as well as standalone books fit into that? Those are great, those are great questions. Well. Writing the second book was easy. I just assumed the first one wasn't going to sell. So as soon as I finished Absolute Power, I started writing novel number two. Um, so um, I was maybe a quarter of the way through novel number two when Absolute Power sold. Um, and I had an idea that I was really fascinated with. And I just wanted to write it. Um, so that, that was kind of easy. I'm not saying that any book is easy to write. I still get, you know, butterflies and chills and depths of depression, you know, thinking, oh, my God, I'm scared to death. I'm always scared to death that somebody's going to find out I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and they're going to say, you have no idea what the hell you're doing. Get out of the room. Um, but that, I've always found that fear is a great antidote to complacency in any discipline. The first time you think as a creative person or any person, any job you have, the first time you think you actually know what you're doing and it's cool and you just kind of phone it in, just do what you did last time, screw it. You're done. Go do something else with your life because you've lost that edge that will actually allow you to do really good stuff. Um, you always have to be scared to death. And that's, that fear just percolates like jet fuel to your creative being. It really is. So, um, and moving on to series, I remember my first 12 or 11 or 12 books were all standalone. And then I wrote a book called Split Second and it had King and Maxwell. And I remember finishing that book while I was writing it. I didn't think it was going to be a beginning of the series, but I remember finishing the book and going, okay, that mystery is done, but damn, they have a lot more juice. They have a lot more fuel. I didn't resolve any of the conf personal conflicts between the two. They just started working together in this one. And I thought, I, I can bring them back again. And then that really lit a fire under me so that most of my books since then have been, ser been series. It's, when writing standalone versus writing a series, it's almost like writing a feature film that's two hours and done, you're never going to see it again, or writing a limited series, you know, like a, a Goliath or, you know, or pick whatever screen. You have multiple chances to attack those characters again and again and allow them to evolve. And I came to find that I really like that better than standalones. You know, where you throw all this creative force into creating these characters and then you're one and done. It just seemed to me like there was so much left on the table uh, that nobody was ever going to get a chance to see and I personally would not get a chance to develop further. So that's really why I've got six or seven series running right now because I love revisiting these characters and adding to them. You know, it's like having a clay sculpture and you come in, not only do you slap more clay on, you keep refining what you have more and more until you whittle it down to you get as close to perfection as anybody in the creative world can be. So the series allow me to do that. And I read that you work on two, three, four novels across different series at the same time. Why do you choose that approach? It may be one, because I have, sometimes I have a short attention span. <laughs> or secondly, it's because um, when I'm working on one project, I tend to write until my tank is empty. I don't count words or pages. I don't do 500 words. Okay, I have 500 words, I'm done. Or you know, three pages, I'm done. That works for other writers and that's fine. If that works for you, God bless you. But for me, it's like this artificial goal. It almost, it's almost saying to yourself, I hate this shit. So I'm just gonna get my 500 and I'm out of here. You know, I sit down and I write until I don't have anything else to write. It's all in my head, it's already on the page. And so I go away from it. And if my head isn't filled up with more stuff to write about it, Oftentimes, I will go off and work on something else because I'm interested in that other project. But at the same time, it's a great catharsis because I solve plot problems on this project by going and working on something else. And part of my brain is still thinking about project number one. Um, but while I'm not writing it, I'm actually thinking about it and the plot issue is resolved. And I go back to it and hit that one as well. So for me, production-wise, if I can use that term in the creative process, 
it's worked really well for me. So I don't, I'm not sitting there twiddling my thumbs for six weeks while I figure something out. I'm actually writing pages of another project that I'm really interested in too. And I'm, I'm really good. I had to do this as a lawyer. I'm really, really good at compartmentalizing. Because as a lawyer, I would work on a dozen different cases at the same time. And I had to bring everything I had to each one of them at distinct times. And I do the same thing as a writer. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E.com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. So a question that we always ask novelists on the show is whether or not they're a, a plotter or a plunger. That's the terminology we often heard. So whether there's someone who has the, the arc, that the full thing works out in advance, be that in post-it notes or in whatever medium, or whether they're just jumping in and, and following their subconscious. We've had completely divergent answers from both ends and also in the middle of that spectrum. Where do you stand, David, on that one? I'm both and neither, I think, at the same time. And, and I'll tell you why. I've tried outlining in, in the entire novel from beginning to end, figuring all the things out um, because, you know, I have a lot of friends who do it that way. So early on, I was like, let me, let me try that, see if that actually works for me. And then I would have it and then I'd sit down to use that to write the novel and it, and it almost invariably, none of the outline ended up in the book. It just didn't end up in the book. I'm like, why the hell am I wasting my time doing this? I would give you the, the, the analogy, if you want to learn how to drive a Formula One car, I mean, really drive it in all sorts of situations. You can do it two ways. You can read a book about driving a Formula One car, or you can drive a Formula One car. There's a certain non-urgency to drafting an outline where you go, okay, here's my investigator. He's going to go talk to this person, and a murder's going to happen, and the body's here, and I've got a couple of clues. Okay, you know, and everything fits neatly together, and it's, you know, and at the end, the bow is tied, and off we go, right? I, don't, I would never want to write a book like that. I want it to be held to skelter, higgly-piggly, you know, all over the place. I don't want readers to go, oh, I see the pathway. It's quite clear, you know. Yes, I'm having my tea or coffee and I'm following along. Yep, ended just as I thought it would. What a wonderful outline that was. Who the hell wants to write a book like that? So for me, I just, I just jump into the trenches, you know. And because in the trenches, when you're actually writing the novel, your characters do far different things than they do in an outline. There's a sense of urgency there that the bullets are flying, the bodies are actually being found. I'm seeing the bodies for myself being found. Criminals are coming out of the woodwork. You know, people are after me. Uh, clues are confounding. You know, there's like nine different red herrings out there. And what, what happens at that point? Your creative juices are firing off a million miles an hour. Where in an outline, you're at your leisurely pace of putting, crafting this all together and making sure it all works out. And it's complicated, but easy to follow. And you're in the middle of it, you're in the trenches when the bullets are actually flying. Your mind thinks at a whole different level. It's all of a sudden, it's like the synapses are firing at a trillion, trillion a second. And you see the entire field. It's like a foot, you know, an American football player, a running back. He's given the ball. Or the quarterback, Tom Brady, drops back. And what's the one thing they say about great athletes? They see the entire field. They see everything, all other players on the side, and they see every weakness to exploit, every avenue to go through and to win a game. And it's all in slow motion. And that deserves between someone who's a champion and someone who's not. And I don't know if you can teach that, but the great ones have it. 
and you're in the middle of a novel, I see everything. I see everything from point A to point Z. I see more than I would ever have seen in a novel, in an outline, because it's actually happening at that point in time for me. So everything is heightened. And guess what? When, when I'm writing it and everything is heightened for me, guess what happens when the people are reading it? Everything is heightened for them too, because you write the story a different way. So I don't know if that makes me a plunger or a plotter, um, it, but I write, I, what I want to do is I want to write in the moment. And that's what works for me. How uh, intensive is the editing process? Do you go back over the manuscript once you've finished it and make sure you have enough red herrings, enough misdirection, character details are consistent? Or once you're in it and you've written it, is it more or less as it, as it turns out? There's a, there's a library in Maryland here where they have, a, they have an unusual collection. They have a collection of first drafts of classical novels, and then you can read the finished product you know, between the covers. Um, and you can read like the first draft of The Great Gatsby or the first draft of Absalom, Absalom or William Faulkner, whatever you want to do. And you'll see that um, I think with a few exceptions, William Styron being one of them, um, there's a lot of difference between that first draft and the end. You know, the first draft for me is getting things out there that are important to the novel. So I will, I will equate it to building a house. That first draft is the foundation, you know, and I've got a few walls up. They're just, they're just stud walls. There's nothing on them at all. And so I know that at least the basic parameters of the story is there. Yeah, the characters are developed and all that. But then the second wave, I go in and I put, start putting drywall up, you know. And then the third wave is, you know, I, I finish the roof and I start painting. And the fourth wave is I start maybe bringing some furniture in and putting carpet down. The refinement and the finessing and the additional thinking that goes into it is critical. Um, so while the basic parameters and structure of the stories that I write in the first draft are always in the end result, um, I would say that all the stuff I do in between actually makes the novel what it should be. You know, anybody, most people can write a basic story, you know, that people could read and follow, but making it rise above that basic level and making it actually special and memorable, that comes in the editing process. Um, and that's, so I spend a lot of time editing and things do change. Um, they may not seem major, but for me, they really drive the novel to another level. So you've got over 110 million copies of your books in print, 45 languages, more than 80 countries. What is the experience of, of having your writing read on, on that scale like? And, and as a second part of the question, it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it's interacting with people's writing lives. So for this, be as candid or as guarded as, as you want, but how over your career has the, the financial element interacted with the creative? And particularly we saw that you're, you're kind of adamant that it's important that you know, you're a master of your own business affairs as a writer as well. Yeah, I, I do think that's very important. And when I, when I go and give lectures and I talk to aspiring writers, I tell them the creative component is essential. Without that, you don't have to worry about the business end. There won't be any money <laughs> if you don't get that part right. Um, but don't abdicate control of that to other people because at the end of the day, you're going to end up disappointed. Because, um, you know, five books in, you're going to go, why are my advances going down? Why are my books not distributed here and there? Where are my sales going down? What's, what's going on? Well, no one on earth will care more about your career, not your publisher, not your agent, not your best friend, than you do. So I'm not saying micromanage, but I say be aware of the business end. And it was quite clear to me very early on that the old royalty uh, structure that's been around since like the 1700s, at least in this country, um, was for shit for writers. I mean, yeah, they, you're going to get 15% of the hardcover price. They're going to wholesale, so they're going to get half. So really you get 30% of the price of the book and that's your royalty, you know, and you get, a, get, a little, you get an advance and then what are, the sales are applied against that. Anything that comes above that, then you get a little more money. And left unsaid is the publisher gets 70%. I'm like, okay. I remember I was at a, I did a joint event with John Grisham a few years ago. And somebody asked about this very question, the business and the publishing. And I said, my mantra is very simple. No one should make more money off of a book than the person who created it, right? And I remember when I did that, Grisham took the microphone away from me and he held it out to the audience and said, you can start applauding now. <laughs> because really it's a basic just semblance of fairness in this whole thing. Publishers have thousands of books they publish every year. You know, authors, most authors have one book they might publish in a year or two or three years. So knowing the business end of it, I, you know, literally rewrote the structure. 
at least I did it for me and other writers have followed suit, where if you've gotten to a point in your career where you are you know, commercially successful, and I did this as a lawyer all the time, you go back in and you, you negotiate a new deal when the deal comes up. And you're like, this is the way it's going to be. You know, I give you product every year. And I go out and I bust my ass marketing and going to places and selling it. So every year you can count on at least two books from me from the last 14 years. And, and you sell enough books and, and then you say, here's what I want it to be. <clears throat> I want to be a partner with you. So we're going to have this big pie and we're going to split it uh, fairly, <clears throat> but in a way that is more for me than for you. But you're going to make a shitload of money too. And we presented that deal to them and they were like, okay, <laughs> that works. We're still making a lot of money. You're making a lot of money. We're all, we're all motivated. Um, but I become a partner with them. And I think that's fair. But at the same time, you know, then you have to realize too that partnering means not just writing the books, but helping to promote them and getting out there and talking about them and having these, you know, social media platforms and, and all that to promote it as well. But if you want to be a true partner in the process, then I think don't just say that the royalty structure is the only way I can possibly do a deal. That's bullshit. You know, you control your own, control your own career, control your future. And I've, and I've done that. And look, I can tell you without a doubt, I mean, I literally would have left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table if I hadn't done it that way. And it's, it's spectacularly amazing to me that still a lot of best-selling novelists still do the royalty structure. And I'm thinking to myself, why? You know, why? It's not just about the money. It's about, being, it's about fairness. You know, when I was a lawyer, all I wanted for my clients was fairness. Um, and why should they make the lion's share of the money? And I'm actually creating the book. So that's what I did. Other writers have, have followed suit. But when I got in there, one of the first, it took a while because I had to build up my career and fan base and book sales and all that. Now I've, I've sold, you know, last I heard, I'm approaching 180 million copies sold around the world. That only tells people that it is, it's working. You know, everybody is making money off of this. Um, and I, and I, told, I told my publisher too, look, you're making like a 25% return on your investment. I said, go anywhere and try to find a better return on your investment every year than that. If you can, God bless you. And they were like, no, we can't find a better return than that. So we'll do it. In terms of the logistics of how that works, is it that the publishers recoup their costs and then profits are divided equally between you or you, you get slightly more? So what happens is they still pay me a significant advance. And that advance is based on past history of the books. So every six months, I don't get a royalty statement that, you know, quite frankly, are indecipherable anyway. I don't even think the publishers understand the royalty statements. I, I actually, I've gone to like six different publishers around the world and, these old, and I said, explain this shit to me. And they would be like, eh, no, mm, nope, I <laughs> really can't do it. I'm sorry. I have to talk to the bean counter. Um, so they pay in advance to me, right? And the book goes out and sales are started and revenue starts coming in. So then, you know, at the, on my expense list, I have manufacturing costs, promotions costs, every cost that goes into that as well. So they have to recoup all of that um, plus what they paid me. And then when there's more money left over, and trust me, there always is, and I'm basing this on 45 books now, um, then we split that equally, you know? So I, I end up making more money than they do but again, it's a very significant return on investment for them. And it, it's worked beautifully because uh, there's a synergy now that we're, you know, books come out every year. I do my thing. Books sell. You know, we control our costs because, you know, if I'm a partner on that, then I'm like, OK, we don't have to spend that much on advertising this time because my name's pretty well known. You don't need to, you know, blanket everything. Let's do digital now, which is far cheaper. And that's where my audience is anyway. You know, you can do a few ad, newspaper ads. That's fine, too. But so we control costs. We don't throw money away because at the end of the day, we both know that if we don't need to spend that money there, then that money goes into both of our pockets. So it's just, it's, let me just say it this way. It's a more traditional business experience that I was just used to as a lawyer. When I would negotiate deals, this, you know, the royalty thing, it makes no sense to me at all, at all. That's not how business works. How business works in the real world is the deal I have now. Do you think it's because you had this legal background that you had both the, the kind of technical competence to make that arrangement, but also that sort of professional confidence to say, look, this may have happened for 300 years, but I'm, we're not going to play by these rules. Oh, absolutely. I, I remember my American publisher, Wade, he, when we finished this deal, he goes, I love you, but God damn it, I hate the son of a bitching lawyers. 
he goes, he goes, you're like one of the few we have that actually can read these damn contracts and understand what they mean. And, uh, and he, uh, he goes, I guess that's why we're, why we're here where we are now, right? I said, yeah, it is. But at the end of the day, <laughs> just because something's been around for 300 years doesn't mean it's right or fair. You know, we'd still have driving around in the horse and buggy rather than a car that's an improvement. So I just, I look upon what I did business-wise as, as a template, a model for other writers too, to make it fair. I'm not saying that everybody can get the same deal that I can. I, you know, I've sold a lot of books and I've written a lot of books. But I can tell you this, if, you, if you're an author and you've written a couple of books and they've done well, you can do better than the old royalty structure. I can tell you that. As we're coming towards the end of our time, I wondered if I could ask about some of your other work, specifically young adult fiction, children's fiction, and, and more literary novels. How does the experience of writing those compare with writing thrillers and, and your series? Yeah, the, fa- the fantasy novels I, uh, that I did... Um, I loved reading fantasy when I was a kid. You know, I was a Tolkien groupie. I loved C.S. Lewis, The Witch in the Wardrobe. And, um, and they just really spoke to me as a kid because kids love things outside the real world. You know, we just like to imagine these things. You know, we, we love to imagine the animals can actually dress as people and walk around and talk and have adventures. You know, I, I love that kind of stuff. So when I'd written, you know, 35 books or so, I thought, why don't I try my hand at something different, another genre? Again, it's a writer getting out of his comfort zone. I didn't want to sit there and you know keep writing the same book over and over again. I wanted to challenge myself to do something totally different. And the great thing with fantasy is that I didn't have to you know abide by the rules of the real world. I write about you know CIA or FBI or whatever in my books, and I had to be true to that. I have to do the research. And I have to make sure it's right. I can't fudge that stuff. I can't have a you know a Secret Service agent whipping out a magical wand <laughs> doing stuff. I mean, it would be ridiculous. But with the fantasy novels, I got to create something I'd never been able to do before, my own world and all the ground rules from the get-go, from the, from the base all the way to the top. Never been able to do that before. And for me, that was just liberating and exhilarating and fascinating, you know, coming up with a different language, coming up with names, uh, you know, really researching mythology and using my imagination like I did as a kid where this is possible because I say it is in, my, you know, in writing a fantasy like that. So it was so liberating and... I, I keep trying to write outside different genres. I think I'm the only thriller writer in the world who's had two Hallmark movies made. <laughs> you know, The Christmas Train and recently One Summer, you know, like family dramas and all that. Because I don't like to put myself into a, a genre box and say, oh, he's a thriller writer, so that's, you know, he's over here and never let him out of his cage. Um, I just think I'm a writer and I should be able to write about what I want to write about. Do you, you, as you were saying, kind of constantly trying to push these the genre boundaries, and you've written, you know, more, I suppose, literary, if that's the right word, novels in terms of like Wish You Well and things like that. How do you see that you're perceived by the kind of literary establishment and things like that? Is there an, an envy of your, uh, your, your kind of commercial success? And do you ever feel that there's a, a sort of snobbery towards some of the kind of stuff that you do? There, there, there clearly is. I mean, I, I'm not going to you know, lie and say there's not. I wish there wasn't this sort of this confrontational aspect of it between people who write the... I, I remember talking to some people like, I'm, I, I win lots, I'm one of those writers who win lots of prizes and I don't sell any books. You know, and I get the frustration there where you've written a terrific book and it may not have mass appeal for whatever reason it could be because not enough people understand it, the publisher didn't support it well enough. And I totally get that for it. I'd be pissed too, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all trying to write books to make people read more books too. And... One of the things that, you know, my publishers have told me is that you generate enough income that we can publish some books that otherwise we wouldn't be able to publish. We have the extra money to do that and support new voices, new writers. I'm all about bringing new writers on and new voices. We need that. I'm not, I'm not going to be writing forever. Grisham's, Stephen King's not going to be writing forever. I remember Stephen King had been given, who I greatly admire, he'd been given this award from the National Book Foundation. And he went and he delivered a really impassioned speech about that we should not be warring factions, you know, commercials versus literary. We're just writers. So it'd be great if we could just, you know, work together and not have this hostility. And some people there, you know, supported that. Other people, you know, told him to just back off. You know, we don't need to hear this crap from you. Uh, but I really admired him for saying it uh, because it, it is a fact. Look, you know, books and reading, you know, we're sort of under siege because there's lots of other ways people can spend their time. And we don't have near the notoriety or public awareness that other places do. If you look at the, in the United States, we have two major literary awards, you know, the Pulitzer Prize 
um, which is not given out for fiction every year, and then the National Book Award. And that's it. None of it is televised. Nothing, you know, there's no newspaper articles written about it. It's just, okay, there it is, whatever. The movie industry has like 14 award ceremonies. They're all televised. Millions of people see them. Papers write all about them. The music industry, the same, you know. So we're kind of like the sorry stepchild down here. So the last thing we need to be doing is warring within ourselves because we have enough competition out there. As a final question for me, could you tell us a little bit about your latest novel, Mercy? So this, the whole Atlee Pine series is, was a new one for me. This is the first time I've written a series um, that had one underlying mystery throughout four books that was finally resolved in Mercy. So Atlee Pine is an FBI agent. She had a twin sister named Mercy. Um, Mercy was kidnapped when they were six years old from their home in Georgia, and no one's ever seen Mercy since. So I decided, I named the first book Long Road to Mercy, and I was being very literal. I wanted to tell readers, this ain't getting resolved for a while, so hang on with me. So then A Minute to Midnight came out, which further achieved. Atlee's also doing other plots and mysteries along the way and solving those within the book. So it's almost like a procedural that gets resolved every book with this underlying mystery that keeps going forward each time. Uh, which is kind of like some of the limited edition TV series you see out there now. The third book was Daylight, and she gets really close to finding out what happened to her sister, and she solves another unrelated mystery in that novel. And then Mercy, and I title it Mercy because this is the end of The Long Road to Mercy. You know, Because Mercy, if you look at Long Road to Mercy, Mercy is at the end of that title, and Mercy is at the end, um, the final book of that series. So in this book, everything is resolved, you know. Uh, Mercy is discovered, and we know what happened to her, and we know how it affects Pine and the rest of Pine's family. Um, so it was really cool, and again, it got me out of my comfort zone because I had to, I had to not only create, you know, discrete plots planted inside each book that were resolved. I had to have this underlying mystery that I had to add to each book to go along with each discrete mystery that was resolved. And that's, it's almost like being Clint Eastwood and being the actor and director. I really had two hats in that. So I wrote two books within one, four books in a row. Um, and it was a challenge, but cool. You know, it, you know, it keeps me motivated, that's for sure. David, we're, we're right up against the limit of our time, but um, thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with your, um, your very busy time timetable going forward. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. The questions are great. And so I always enjoy talking about this stuff, but you know, it's, it's, it's my world. So thank you very much for the opportunity. That was the Always Take Notes interview with David Baldacci. He's on Twitter at David Baldacci. His website is davidbaldacci.com and his latest book is Mercy, published by Pam McMillan. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Tracy Chevalier, and here's a snippet. Tell us about a time you failed in your writing career and what you learned from it. <laughs> uh, well, before I wrote Girl with a Pearl Earring, um, I wrote a novel, contemporary novel, set in Highgate Cemetery. And um, it was pretty bad. And I, uh, luckily my agent, Johnny Geller, read it. And, and I had also given him the idea for the Vermeer book. And he said... Tracy, I think you should set that one aside because it's not working and write the Vermeer. And, I, and he was right. He was right. And I thought about the... the um, Hello, it's us again. I already know the answer to this, but what was your main takeaway from the interview with David Simon? I was just bowled away by his, um, his mastery of the publishing industry, by the fact that he had decided that the royalty structure, which, as he put it, had been in play for 300 years, just wasn't fair and wasn't egalitarian, a, a widely known fact. But unlike all other authors, he just decided to do something about it and negotiated himself a, a completely different type of deal. And obviously, 
you know, we have to accept that he was doing this from a position of having sold about a bajillion books. <laughs> but I think it also was a function of the fact he'd been a lawyer and also that he just wasn't going to put up with it. I, I do, I mean, as, as you know, Rachel, after the interview, I was just like, I'm blown away and inspired by this. But um, I just thought it was interesting and this idea that, you know, these things are, are up for negotiation, right? It was fascinating. Mm. As you say, starting from a, a strong position, I was in a completely different uh, way, blown away by his productivity, working on three books or four books simultaneously. Yeah. Incredible. Um, but yeah, it was a great interview. And it was another very witty, um, loquacious guest. Yeah, I like the bit about when he got buttonholed by a, a Secret Service agent at the premiere of the uh, adaptation of his first book. A nice, nice anecdote to have. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our crowdfunding page on Patreon is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.